we all know someone who has a way of bringing people together at Christmas time. I'm John Fuller, and welcome to another episode of the Christmas Stories Podcast as we discuss some inspiring ways that you can reach out to your family and friends. And joining me again today are Paul Batur and Diane Angolia. And Paul, I wonder if you know anyone who's good at what I said, bringing people together at Christmas. I do, John. His name is Russ Josephs. Believe it or not, he was my uh, elementary school PE teacher. We've stayed in touch. He was the one who got me into running, and we've stayed in touch all these many years. Um, he was a, always a quirky, eccentric kind of guy. He drove a Ford Pinto back in the <laughs> 70s back and 80s. He actually had, for those of, in the audience who are, remember the Ford Pinto, it had a mechanical uh, problem in that um, the, if it was impacted from behind, the gas tank would blow up. So he actually had on the back of his window warning exploding gas tank, <laughs> and he put a hobby horse on top of his car, and it was such an old rotted out car that he had floorboards on the bottom to you know prevent uh, things from the road flying up into the car. So a very funny guy, took us to ball games, became a great friend. Every Christmas, he lives in this little town on Long Island called Garden City, and every Christmas he hosts a carol sing on Christmas Eve. One block from his house, there's a little enclave that was built by Doubleday back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was built to look like an English town because uh, they were trying to recruit bookbinders to come over from England to work at Doubleday. So uh, it's just very picturesque. And he brings out every Christmas Eve, he brings out luminaries and hands out song sheets, and they do a carol sing. And they're old song sheets. We often, uh, I've joined him, and you're holding ancient paper singing the classic carols of Christmas with people from all different walks of life. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful memory and uh, something that he does very, very well. Mm. How about you, Diane? My sister does this beautifully. She, um, they expanded their house on purpose so that she could make a bigger table so that she could host more people. So at Christmas, her door is open and people come and go and there's food and there's, you know, music and there's cookies. Uh, this year is going to be interesting to see mm-hmm. what happens, but I know her door will still be open yeah. to welcome anyone who comes through the neighborhood, the neighborhood families, plus all of the Italian families that we have. Uh, Lisa is amazing at making people feel welcome and warm and so glad that they stepped into her home. Yeah, I've got a neighbor, John, who's similar, I think, in heart to your sister. Um, he built uh, an addition to keep all of the Christmas stuff. He started collecting when he was a kid, and he literally has 40 or 50 Christmas trees in his home yeah. at Christmas time and all sorts of other decorations. And it's his annual tradition, he and his wife, to invite the neighbors mm-hmm. and uh, church family and former colleagues uh, from work to their home at Christmas time. They have four nights that you can pick, <laughs> and it's limited to like the first 50 people a night. That, wow. that, and everywhere you go, they have card tables set mm. up for people to sit and talk. They have Christmas decorations. They have kids. And then the corniest uh, white elephant gift exchange. I love and those. And I have never met so many different interesting people, and it changes every year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just know they're all friends of John because he's got mm-hmm. this big heart. It might be that you've got somebody in your life like that, and if you do, that's awesome. And uh, right now what we're going to do is hear an audio drama from author Carrie Kistler. It's called When Christmas Came to Thorn Creek Bridge, and 
This is delightful. It's narrated by the very talented voice actor George Saris, and it's an encouraging drama about how God's love can heal a divided community. When Christmas Came to Thorn Creek Bridge by Carrie Kistler. It has taken me some time to reconstruct this story. Fragments have come together slowly from diverse sources. Crumbling newspapers, church records, a shoebox full of yellowing letters, and a few odd diaries. I have followed every thread to its end and done my best to reweave this tapestry, a story unraveled by time itself. It began with a photograph, a brittle, sepia-toned photograph discovered while doing some research in the basement archives of the Thorn Creek Courthouse. The photo was remarkable enough, but it was the simple inscription written on the back which teased my curiosity. In elegant cursive lettering was written this cryptic note. When Christmas came to Thorn Creek Bridge. This is the story behind that photograph. Construction on the Thorn Creek Bridge began during a gray and dismal week in late autumn. The weather was befitting since the bridge had been planned under a dark cloud of disagreement and suspicion. The prevailing mood around Thorn Creek was as gloomy as the sky itself. And nobody quite knew how to fix it. What started as a simple splinter of opinion quickly festered into an ugly wound of division. The villagers of Thorn Creek really had no choice about replacing the existing crumbling bridge which spanned the creek and connected the village. Everyone was in unanimous agreement that a new covered bridge was needed. Sadly, this was the only point on which everyone could agree. This division crept in when the sturdy people from both sides of the creek exchanged ideas about how many lanes the new covered bridge should have. Some were for keeping a single lane bridge for the sake of economy. The rest were for a wider double lane bridge for the sake of convenience. One half declared that two lanes were an expensive extravagance, which was quite unnecessary given the size of the village. They insisted that a single lane bridge had adequately served their small, tucked away village quite nicely. The other half thanked them for pointing out that a single lane bridge had obviously hindered the growth of their community. This shifted the discussion to the question of what was so wrong with the size of the community. The debate raged on until one of the local preachers wearily proclaimed from his pulpit on a Sunday morning that even Paul's thorn in the flesh 
paled in comparison to the thorny problem of Thorn Creek Bridge. Strange that a structure meant to connect people should serve to drive a solid wedge of separation between them instead. Finally, a truce was forcibly called by the rapidly changing autumn weather, which resulted in a reluctant and unhappy compromise. A two-lane covered bridge would be built, but it would be considerably simplified from the originally proposed design. Neither side was very happy over the decision, and few made any effort to hide their feelings. Someone even took the liberty of changing the bridge plans by adding a long rail fence divider right down the middle of the bridge. It was supposedly aimed at separating the two lanes for safety's sake. But everybody knew that the divider was really meant to say much more. Thus began many years of bitter resentment, which set itself into the bones of the people who continued to pass each other inside the bridge without so much as a smile, wave, or nod. For years, the sad beginning of Thorn Creek Bridge stayed fresh in the minds of the local population. Eventually, it was rarely spoken of anymore. Even children who had been too young to remember the incident grew up with only a vague awareness that the abundance of local hard feelings was somehow mysteriously connected to that bridge. While travelers often stopped near the bridge to admire and comment on its beautiful simplicity, the local villagers had long since run out of things to say about it. After all, everything that could be said had been said, and many times over. And then, whether by accident or providence, something happened inside that covered bridge which changed nearly every person in that small village forever. It began on a cloudy day in mid-December, when Hezekiah Hoover, a local farmer, had just purchased a wagon load of used farm items and was hauling them across Thorn Creek Bridge. Between the noise of the creek and the rumble of the stout wagon, Hezekiah never heard the muffled thud behind his rig. Unknown to Hezekiah, a wooden hay box had tumbled off his load and landed right in the middle of Thorn Creek Bridge. A short time later, while unloading his cargo into a shed, he realized that the hay box was missing and headed back down the road, hoping to find it along the way. And this he did. As Hezekiah approached Thorn Creek, he saw the silhouette of his box sitting on its four stubby legs in the middle of the covered bridge. At that moment, there was a sudden breaking in the clouds, which caused brilliant light to wash across the bridge. It spilled through a window and poured over the hay box, bathing it in a warm pool of light. He squinted and saw something else. 
The box had been empty when he loaded it only an hour before. Now it brimmed with clean, dry hay, and a pure white cloth was draped across the top. Hezekiah experienced a strange sensation, something he had never felt while crossing the bridge. It was an odd sensation of peace mixed with guilt. He had been one of the loudest supporters of the two-lane group. And now his hay box was blocking one of those lanes. It would have to be moved. And yet, he could not bring himself to disturb it. Then quietly, as if carried to his mind on an early winter breeze, came these words. And they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. A restrained smile softened Hezekiah's lined face, and he climbed down from his wagon with an idea. Reaching into the back, he grabbed several items that had not yet been unloaded and walked up to the manger. He would not move it. In fact, he would continue what some unknown person had already begun. Carefully, he draped a saddle blanket over a beam behind the manger. Next to that, he added a wooden pitchfork and bucket. As Hezekiah climbed into his wagon and turned for home, the first delicate snowflakes of the year began to fall gently around him. For the first time since the bridge was built, he actually thought it looked beautiful. Well, we're going to hear the rest of the drama in just a moment, but this quick reminder that as Advent starts this Sunday, uh, here at Focus on the Family, we have a free Advent calendar called Preparing the Way for Jesus. It's filled with great activities for your family, and you can download it and find information in the show notes. Let's go ahead and hear the rest of this drama when Christmas came to Thorn Creek Bridge. About an hour later, Widow Ruth Parrington approached the bridge in her black carriage. Being a widow, Ruth had learned how to make do and naturally fell in line with a single lane group. She stopped at the entrance of the bridge and with a fierce look on her face, saw something blocking her lane. She paused for nearly a minute, brooding over what to do, and then did what no one else dared to do. She was not about to clear the rubbish from her rightful lane. So she pulled crisply into the opposite oncoming lane and entered the covered bridge. As Ruth rattled up opposite the manger, she stopped and studied it with a look of startled recognition. Overcome with an odd feeling of peace, tinged with shame, she impulsively stepped from her carriage to take a closer look. 
Mrs. Ruth Parrington had very little of this world's goods to her name. But among those few items was a length of old, thick rope which her late husband had kept stowed under the seat of the carriage. Without a second thought, she fished around for the coil of rope and carefully climbed through the rail fence divider. She draped the rope over one of the tines on the pitchfork behind the manger. And with that simple act, felt freer than she had in many years. The bondage of her bitterness dropped away simply, much as the rope she just laid aside. Ruth began to think that perhaps a two-lane bridge may not have been such a bad idea after all. It was about this time that Jacob and Gertie Scott pulled up to Thorn Creek Bridge in their rig. They wanted to cross, but found Widow Parrington blocking their lane. Jacob and his wife had made some very vigorous noise in favor of the two-lane idea. They had even made some memorable visits to promote their views. At least Ruth still remembered them. Previously, Ruth and Gertie had often taken tea together, a practice which stopped abruptly the day the new bridge was started. Even now, as Ruth seated herself in her carriage, she could feel a cold chill blow through the bridge from Gertie's direction. But her own heart had already begun to thaw, and by the time she pulled out of the bridge and into the falling snow, she was smiling. Warmly. Then, for the second time in one day, Ruth did something she thought she would never dare do. She spoke to Gertie Scott. Good thing the bridge was built with two lanes, Ruth chirped. The other lane seems to be blocked. It wasn't much, but the implication could have filled a book. And then Ruth nodded, good day, and continued slowly down the lane as the Scots entered the covered bridge in stunned silence. Ruth waited until she thought it was safe and then looked back. The Scots had stopped in the middle of the bridge. But more than that, they had climbed through the rail fence divider and were placing some object near the manger. Ruth's vision blurred a bit as she turned and hastened toward home. So began the gradual awakening of the village on both sides of Thorn Creek Bridge. In such a small community, word spread with predictable speed. And soon, everybody was making excuses to cross the bridge, whether they really had any place to go or not. And over the next two weeks, a remarkable thing happened. The eastbound lane of Thorn Creek Bridge was transformed as the trappings of a Bethlehem stable began to accumulate around the manger. Someone gilded the floor with golden straw, while others brought the common items of a barn, a wooden shovel, several rough burlap bags, leather horse tack, and a shepherd's staff. There was a rough wooden crate upon which others had placed a clay water pot a worn child's drum, and a few carpenter's tools. In the windowsill, 
sat a container of fragrant perfume, right next to a wooden mallet which rested upon several long wrought iron nails. Next to this was a crude crown of thorns, crafted from one of the thorn trees growing near the bridge. And there was more, much more. Some objects had private meanings which only a few people were meant to understand, while others were meant for everybody. Perhaps the most poignant were two sets of bridge plans, one for a single lane bridge and one for a much fancier double lane bridge. Both were unrolled and tacked side by side on the wall and both had the words, I am sorry, written across them. All of this would really have been enough for anybody, but another miracle was yet to unfold. With utter spontaneity on Christmas Eve, the village gathered itself inside the bridge as if it were observing some well-established tradition. No announcements had been made, no invitations sent, no organized effort of any kind had occurred. They simply assembled. They talked. Some laughed together. Others cried. There were handshakes and hugs and healing. There was a private invitation to tea and a glad acceptance. And there were dozens of other similar redemptive acts. In fact, the man who supposedly thought up the rail fence divider brought a saw, and together they cut it down. They cheered, and they laughed, and when someone began to sing Silent Night, they all sang together with one voice. Even the creek beneath them was frozen into hushed silence, as if the miracle happening overhead had left it speechless. That nativity didn't need any painted wooden cutout figures. The villagers became the cast. And truly, the most important figure of all had stepped among them. Some skeptics said that the folk just needed an excuse to break ranks and set things right. That a bridge-blocking manger did the trick. It wasn't the manger, of course. No manger ever claimed that sort of power. The humble cradle of long ago simply held the truth, which is the only thing that will ever really set any of us free. Perhaps the manger on the bridge was meant as a special echo of that truth, designed just for the folk who needed it the most. Happily, each year thereafter in early December, the Nativity was faithfully reassembled in the eastbound lane of Thorn Creek Bridge and remained there until well past Christmas. It was often said that a warmer Christmas tradition had never been established. And truthfully, whenever the bridge was blocked by someone pausing inside to remember the Christ child, all others waited patiently outside. For none of them ever forgot. It was because of his humble birth that two lanes became one and a sturdy fence of division came down.
Well, that's quite a powerful story, isn't it, of uh, how God's love can bring peace to a community. And uh, Diane and Paul, there are some opportunities that we are all given to kind of bring that peace of God to uh, those around us. How about you, Diane? Uh, How's God using you to really just speak into the lives of those around you? We have a lot of uh, senior citizens, not a lot, but in our neighborhood, and who have been isolated for a long time. And to be able to take the grandkids with a plate of cookies, uh, knock on their door and hand them the cookies and just tell them we're thinking, we love you. And just to, when, when they see little ones, it, they just yeah, brighten they up and up, yeah. they do light up. And, and then to know that the kids decorated those cookies, I don't know whether or not they'll eat them because I'm sure they're <laughs> thinking how many little fingers were in those cookies. But it was just the idea that somebody took the time to come to their home Mm -hmm. and let them know we're thinking and loving you. Yeah, we do the same thing. Uh, And and we just met some neighbors that had moved in uh, just prior to Christmas. Uh, We we were talking to them earlier this summer as we were out strolling, and they were like, oh, you're you're the ones who brought over the bird seed and the little bird feeder. Mm. And and it was a point of connection, six months after the fact. But it was a neat little way to just express, hey, uh, you know what? We're the Fullers, and we live over here, and if Mm -hmm. you ever need something... And so it's the beginning of some mm-hmm. neat conversations. How about you, Paul? Diane, just bring the cookies and put them in the break room. Oh, okay. Someone will take them. <laughs> yeah. Right yeah. And with your ice cream, it'll be a terrific yeah. time. Yum. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, last year, my church asked, our church asked if I would write a Christmas story for a little bit of a change of pace. So I, you know, literally came up with this idea based on the fact that many years ago, this is a true story, this part of the story is true, that there was a blizzard in Colorado, the Christmas of 82. Mm -hmm. It canceled services across the state, including in here in Colorado Springs. But the story that I wrote was fictional. It talked about a, a woman who was expecting a baby coming to a church on Christmas Eve, found it all locked up, except in, in this was a, the true part of the story. Our pastor had come down to turn the lights on, to be there just in case anybody came. Mm. So I kind of fictionalized it and told the story. And uh, many people had questions for our pastor, who's now retired. They said, is this true? He said, all the things in the story are true. They just didn't happen all at once and all on the same night. Well, lo and behold, I got a phone call or a letter, I guess it was, from someone who said, I was that young woman oh, wow. who was expecting a baby who showed up at church on Christmas. Now, it wasn't the Christmas I wrote about, but she was so drawn into the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just reminded me that, you know, God is in every detail. Mm-hmm. And uh, even in our sometimes fictional stories, people relate. And, um, you know, it's a great, I like hate to say my story is a great story. It is a good story. It is a great story. But it's right, God's yeah. story. Mm-hmm. It's it's the story of Christmas, and it's the story of redemption and hope. And it was entitled Finding Hope on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. And that's what every Christmas holds for everyone. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And, and it's so true. God does give us all opportunities. Let's uh, be open to that. I hope you've been uh, encouraged by the drama and by what Diane and Paul have shared to do that, to look for ways that you can kind of bring that light of the gospel to those around you. Now, there are some fun ways that you can celebrate the season. I mean, lots of fun ways. And earlier we mentioned our free Advent calendar. It's called Preparing the Way for Jesus. And each day includes a new Bible character to follow along with. And uh, you're also going to find some card activities to do with your family. And then last time we also mentioned a book by author Asherita Chuchu. It's called Unwrapping the Names of Jesus, and this is a wonderful resource to go along with the Advent calendar. Uh, We'll send that to you when you make a generous donation of any amount to the ministry here. 
Um, and all the details are available at focusonthefamily.com slash Christmas stories. And uh, we're going to link over to that in the show notes as well. Now, coming up next week on Christmas Stories, an Adventures in Odyssey audio drama called It's a Pokenberry Christmas, based on the classic film It's a Wonderful Life. And for now, on behalf of Paul Batura and Diane Angolia and the entire team here, I'm John Fuller, and this has been the Christmas Stories Podcast. <laughs>